0: Welcome to this Uvila Audio presentation of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer. Volume 2, Chapter 4, A Dead Man Talks Like a huge insect, the gyrodyne fluttered down through the darkness to a flat-roofed building in midtown Manhattan. As it settled to rest, the green landing lights blinked off abruptly. At street level was a showroom full of foreign sports cars with a sign that read, Luxury Motors, Inc. This was cover for Teen Headquarters. Chris glanced at his wristwatch as they all climbed out. It was almost 11.15. Two guards took charge of the prisoners. Then Bo resumed his seat at the controls and waved as the gyrodyne started to rise. So long, you Kingston cats. Ciao, baby. The group descended from the roof in an elevator. Chris and Geronimo got off at the top floor. Most of the personnel were gone for the night and the carpeted corridor was silent except for a muted clatter of teletype machines. Two boys walked to a paneled door. An electronic eye sounded a buzzer inside and the green light flashed promptly and the door opened. Come in, come in. It was all the same as usual. Q hunched at his desk in a navy blue blazer and open necked shirt a beat-up yachting cap on his head, and a pipe sticking out of his grey-blonde whiskers. His manner seemed brisk and cheery, and the bottle of milk for his ulcer was missing from its spot beside the TV monitor. "'Quite an interesting little problem we have here, hmm?' Hugh sprang up from his desk, rubbing his palms together like a Boy Scout twirling a fire stick. "'I find it most intriguing.' Be the problem of the faker who impersonated me at the institute, Chris asked precisely, I mean to say, what's behind it all? Huh? Our job to find out. Q paused to stir up the embers of his pipe. We picked up that faker at Kennedy Airport. He was about to board a British Airways flight to London. He was carrying a false passport and various other items of identification, all made out in the name of Christopher Cool. "'And he looked like me?' Chris queried. "'Oh, very much so. You'll see shortly.' "'Was he carrying the letter he got at the Institute?' "'Luckily, yes.' Q handed it over. Chris read aloud. "'Dear Christopher Cool, "'I may be able to supply information of great importance to you. "'If you are interested, I suggest you come to London at once.' A room will be reserved for you at the Thackeray Arms Hotel. You will be contacted there. Drakhoff? Chris's pulse throbbed with excitement. Information of great importance. That must surely refer to his father, especially since the letter had been sent care of Dr. Jonathan Cool. Or was he building too much hope on a mere guess? Any idea who this Drokoff may be, sir? Geronimo asked. Q. nodded, puffing his pipe. Yes, we have quite a file on Drakov, Master spy, unknown nationality, no physical description. Unfortunately, at present he runs the Drakov Network. The Drakov Network? Chris frowned, recalling the name vaguely from one of the reports he had read. It's a freelance espionage outfit, Q. explained, working both sides of the street. I dare say that Cloak and Dagger has employed it once or twice. This was Q's pet name for the CIA. And so has the opposition. More often than we have, I suspect. What about this fake Christopher Cool, sir? Geronimo asked. Have you identified him yet? Oh, no difficulty there. took his fingerprints and the FBI computed them at once. He's a vicious hood named Vinnie Gorse, age 25. Wanted on eight counts in California Nevada. In fact, there's a $50,000 reward for his arrest, Q coughed delicately and added. You'll get none of it, of course. Of course, Chris went on. And this character just happens to look like me? Not quite. Oh, there is some physical resemblance. Lean, youthful, same height and build. But in Gorse's FBI mugshots, he's brunette and his face looks somewhat different. He's evidently had a bit of plastic surgery and a hair dye job. Another interesting point. Q frowned and rubbed the ball of his pipe against his whiskery cheek. When we pulled him in, he was calm, quiet-spoken and almost indifferent to being arrested. But his police record lists him as violent and emotional. A buzzer sounded at the desk. Q pressed an intercom button. Q here. The prisoner is now ready for interrogation, sir, said a voice from the intercom. Good, we'll be right down. The boys accompanied their chief down one floor to a green padded double door which bore a sign Psychological Laboratory. Inside, a white coated man nodded to Q. He's been given electronic brainwave tranquilizing and an injection of sodium pentothal. You'll find him quite ready to talk. Vinnie Gorse lay peacefully on a cot, eyes closed under a frosted white light. A pair of electrodes were strapped to his temples, and his right shirt sleeve had been rolled up. Chris had been prepared for a resemblance, but the effect was unnerving. It was almost like seeing himself on the interrogation couch. Now then, my boy, are you quite comfortable? Q addressed the prisoner in a fatherly tone. Oh, yeah. Tell me who you are. I'm Toad Courier A J Nine, my control is Nikos, the East Coast boss of North American Toad. Chris shot a startled glance at Geronimo. Toad was the most feared criminal organization in the world, with tentacles reaching into every continent and country. And who are you really? I mean, your name and so on. Christopher Cool. I'm a student at Kingston University and the son of Jonathan Cool. You're quite sure of that. Of course, I'm sure. I ought to know my own name, don't you think? just wanted to see if you were positive of your identity, that's all. Don't worry, I'm positive. I can tell you all about my background, my classes, my family. Quite so. I'll take your word for it, Q said soothingly. Now then, why were you taking that plane for London? Well, I'm not sure I ought to tell you. It's all right. I'm a close friend of Nikos. Very close, Hugh assured him. Well, okay, then. He's sending me to London to see a guy named Eli Lustig tomorrow night. Eli Lustig? He lives at 98 Hatton Garden, London. I'm to pick up a package from him. What's in the package? Nikos didn't say. And how will you recognize each other? Easy. Easy. I'm to tell him I'm interested in insects. And then he'll say, what kind? And I'm supposed to reply, rare insects. I see. Hugh nodded approvingly. And after you receive the package, what then? Bring it back here to Nikos. Ah, very good. By the way, where's Nikos staying these days? Gorse shrugged. Search me? He never even gave me a phone number. I'm just supposed to take the package up to a cabin in Maine, where I've been staying, and hand it over there. Oh, was that hole, Q prodded. What about that letter you were carrying from Drakhoff? Oh, that. Well, somebody named Drakhoff is supposed to contact me while I'm in London. I'm Not sure why. He just wrote me out of a clear blue sky, but I'm hoping he may have some information about my father. You see, Dad disappeared while he was in Europe at a scientific conference. So I've heard. And this information you will pass on also to Nikos, right? That's right, of course. I'm not supposed to mention that to Drakov. No, no, of course not. Might spoil everything. After a whispered exchange with the psychologist, Q ended the interrogation. Well, that's all, my boy. You can relax now. Back in his office with the two teen agents, Q stoked up his pipe. So far, so good. The picture begins to take shape more clearly. About as clear as mud to me, sir, said Chris. To begin with, it's obvious that Goss is a toad dead man, Q said smugly. Chris nodded. He knew that in the jargon of intelligence work, a dead man was a courier of absolutely dependable loyalty. Someone who asked no questions and knew nothing about the purpose of their own mission. But Gorse seems to believe he actually is me, and he was speaking in a truth serum. Quite so. Toad often employs a special type of dead man on delicate assignments the law for protection to a wanted criminal like Gorse, and then give him plastic surgery and brainwash him into total amnesia. The operation involves Novocaine injected behind the eyeballs. It's like wiping the slate clean. After that, they can convince him he's anyone they choose. But why should they go to so much trouble to find out what Drakhoff knows about my father? It's clearly an intercept job designed to spoil some operation by the Drakhoff network. In my opinion, it's probably less important than Gross's main assignment to pick up this mysterious package for Nikos. How so, sir? Q shrugged merely from the way Gorse told it. Look at it this way. Toad is sending a dead man courier to London, someone who's tabbed for plastic surgery anyhow. He can easily be made to look like you, so why not? Let him be contacted by Dracov while he's there. Kill two birds with one stone. Chris sighed. Sounds reasonable. You notice that password bit about the rare insects? I did, which reminds me. Q stabbed another button and spoke into the intercom. Lang, what about those hornets or whatever they are? Not much to report, sir, a voice replied. Well, whatever you have, come up and report it, Q bellowed. Presently, Lang, one of Teens' staff scientists, arrived at the office. He was carrying one of the cages with the still anesthetized hornet inside. Even Q appeared startled by the size of it. "'Nasty-looking brood. What is it?' "'I've got no idea,' Lang confessed. "'Anatomically, it's like an ordinary yellow jacket, but of course much larger. As far as I know, nothing so enormous has ever been reported. "'What about that ultrasonic gear?' "'Well, most certainly the oscillator gave off the same frequency of ultrasound as the mating call of the female hornet. These three captured hornets are all males.' There is no doubt they responded to this ultrasound and homed in on the source. Boiled down, then? You mean the ultrasonic oscillator was used to attract the Hornets, as Kingston One here suspected? Exactly, sir. After Lang left, Q paced the office, hands behind his back. bushy eyebrows knit in deep thought. Our next move is clear, he said to Chris. You'll hop a plane immediately to London and carry out Gorse's double mission. Chris gulped slightly. In other words, sir, I'm to impersonate Gorse impersonating me? Couldn't I put it better myself? You'll pick up, or do your best to pick up, the package for Nikos from Eli Lustig. It may give us some important clue to Toad's operation. Judging from his address, Lustig may be a jeweler since Hatton Garden is the diamond centre of London. Try to lay hands on the package. Then wait to be contacted by Drakov, and see what he says about your father. What about me, sir? Geronimo asked. Chris and I usually work as a team. Well, you'd better go along. He might need a bit of support in case of trouble. You'll have to travel separately, of course, and stay away from each other, at least until after the pickup from Lustig. The teen chief shot a glance at Chris. You realize British Toad may have you under observation from the moment you arrive, so you must strictly avoid any contact with our London CIA station. You'll be completely on your own. Chris nodded. Understood. Of course, Q went on, Toad knows by now that their operation is fouled up. They may have found out Gorse was picked up at the airport and British Toad will certainly know that you're arriving on a plane later than Gorse planned to take. They might even suspect that Gorse was replaced, Chris said. Of course, the first thing they'll do is check Kingston U to see if you're still there. And then they'll find out that you're in jail. Q grinned smugly. I beg your pardon, sir? Well, Q explained, Gorse will come in handy impersonating Chris Cool "'Who was jailed yesterday during a campus riot? "'We've already given the story to the press, "'and pictures will be taken in jail to follow it up while you're in London.' "'Chris smiled. "'Very clever. "'You'll have to play it by ear from now on,' Q continued. "'That's why we pick, you brilliant young chaps for teen. "'Able to think your way out of tight spots, huh? "'At any rate, that's your assignment. "'Shall we get cracking?' The boys rushed to Kingston by helicopter to pack their bags. Then they were flown back to the luxury motors for their final briefing. Pomeroy, the fussy little technical genius of Teens Department of Dirty Tricks, outfitted them each with the usual gimmickry for an overseas mission. By four o'clock the next morning, they were on their way to Kennedy International Airport in separate taxis. Chapter 5 hotline. London Airport had been fogged in earlier, and planes were still stacked up, waiting to land. Chris's jet finally came down, and he joined the line of passengers trooping through Passport Control and Customs. I wonder if Jerry's in yet, he thought. The Apache had been booked on Pan American. When Chris emerged onto the main floor of the terminal, he found the place besieged by a horde of screaming teenage girls. The latest pop-singing sensation had developed was about to land. Meanwhile, helmeted bobbies were struggling to hold back the fans. Fat chance of spotting any toad agents in this medlam, Chris thought. More than ever, he missed his red-skinned buddy. Geronimo's Indian radar was sharp enough to spot an enemy even in a riot mob. Outside the air terminal, Chris found a black, slab-sided taxi and told the driver to take him to the Thackeray Arms Hotel. Longo, Governor! Soon they were barreling along the elevated motorway and the Great West Road toward the Big Smoke. A cheerful flow of cockney dialect from the front seat gradually raised Chris's spirits. He began to think that the job might be even fun. London closed in around them with its Quaint, grimy Victorian buildings. They went past Hyde Park Corner and drove up Piccadilly into Jermaine Street. Chris paid the fare and fumbled for a tip to the cabby, while the hotel doorman in a coach's hat and uniform took his luggage. Would seven shillings be about right? Uh, be right, Governor. Grinning, Chris walked into the lobby and registered at the reception desk. I believe I have a reservation, he murmured. ''Yes, indeed, sir. 544. Four. Room all ready and waiting.'' The clerk snapped his fingers and a bellhop, who had Chris's suitcase, walked over to the porter's desk with a key. The chief porter spoke to Chris. ''Mr. Cool, you had a phone call just a few minutes ago.'' ''Oh, who was it?'' ''Man didn't leave his name, sir, but he said he'd ring back shortly.'' Chris accompanied the bellhop into the elevator. He had a faintly uneasy feeling. Was Dracoff already trying to contact him? Or had the caller been someone from the British branch of Toad? Or possibly Geronimo? Inside 544, Chris flipped the rosy-cheeked bellhop a coin and waited until the boy had left. Then he stood thoughtfully for a moment, looking around the comfortable old-fashioned room. Better check for bugs, Chris decided. The room might turn out to be all ready and waiting in more ways than one. From his wallet, Chris took out what looked like a plastic credit card with raised lettering. Methodically, he moved around the room, running the card over walls and furniture. The faintest signal from a hidden transmitter would make the lettering on the card glow red. But no glow appeared, even when he came to the telephone on the night table. Suddenly, Chris turned pale as a horrible suspicion struck him. A phone call. That was the oldest trick in the book. Grabbing the telephone cord, he yanked it loose from the wall box. Then he clamped the receiver in his cradle with one hand and turned the phone upside down. With a tool from his pocket kit, Chris unscrewed the base plate. Wow. A neat-looking lethal assembly was clamped inside the phone housing. Chris's CIA training had given him enough expertise in explosive devices to make out its workings. The bomb was designed to be armed by the ringing of the telephone. When the receiver was lifted, a secondary current was induced into the detonator circuit and then, boom. Perspiring nervously, Chris disconnected and disassembled the device. What do I do with this ruddy mess now, he wondered. He couldn't just drop it in the wastebasket or even call the police bomb squad not unless he cared to answer a bunch of awkward questions which might blow his masquerade sky-high. The simplest solution seemed to be to carry the dangerous parts of the bomb down to the Thames and drop them in and deep-six them. Chris carefully wrapped the detonator cap and the explosive cartridge in handkerchiefs and stuffed them into separate pockets. The bits of wire and other debris he stowed out of sight on a closet shelf. He had just finished screwing the base plate back onto the telephone when he heard a knock. Who is it? All Porter, sir. Chris went to the door and opened it cautiously, one hand on his anesthetic pen. Sorry to trouble you, sir, but someone's calling you on the phone. Switchboard operator tried to ring your room, but she says the line seems to be dead. Really? Chris faked an expression of surprise. I guess I'd better go see. He walked over to the telephone. Oh, wow. Will you look at that? The line's loose from the wall box. Blimey, how'd that happen? We shall have to get it fixed straight away. Meantime, you can take the call on my phone, sir, if you don't mind stepping down the hole. They went down the hotel corridor to the porter's office, where an ironing board was set up with a pair of trousers on it. The porter took a wall phone off the hook and handed the instrument to Chris. Christopher Cool speaking. Yes, here's your call, sir. Hello? Hello? Silence. Then a gentle click. Chris jiggled the hook for the operator. Nobody answered. Oh, dear, I'm sorry. I expect your party must have got tired of waiting and hung up. Yes, I expect so, Chris said dryly. The agent asked for the reception desk. Chris explained to the clerk about his disconnected phone and requested a room change. Of course, sir. Let me see. I can put you in 549. Half an hour later, Chris left the hotel and headed toward Piccadilly Circus. The second call had undoubtedly been intended to kill him when he lifted the receiver and triggered the booby trap. But who had planned his death? It seemed unlikely that Drakhoff would lure him all the way to London just to kill him. And if Toad was behind the plot, then Nikos must suspect the switch of couriers. Either he didn't check Kingston U, or he just doesn't want to take any chances, Chris mused. In any case, Chris realized he was in a nasty spot. Whoever had arranged the booby trap would probably try again. And if Chris switched hotels, he might lose all chance of contacting Drokoff and obtaining any clue to his father's fate. The streets were swarming with homeward-bound office workers. Queues were lining up at the bus stops and snaking their way into the Piccadilly Underground Station. Red double-decker buses chugged through the London traffic, filling the air with petrol fumes. Chris rolled down Regent Street, then via Mall and Trafalgar Square to the river. On the Victoria Embankment along the Thames, he paused idly, glanced around to make sure nobody was watching, and dropped the bomb parts into the water. Aware that Londoners are late diners, Chris killed some time sightseeing for the next two hours. He walked along the embankment and turned up Horse Guards Avenue to Whitehall, pausing to stare admiringly at the guardsman on Sentry in his plumed helmet and shiny boots. I wonder how the Prime Minister's making out, Chris thought. On impulse, he strode up the narrow, dead-end lane of Downey Street. A majestic, moustached bobby stood on duty in front of Number 10, the official residence. "'Greetings from America,' Chris said. "'And how's your Prime Minister doing these days?' The bobby grinned back. "'Best of health last time I saw him, young fella.' Chris walked to Westminster Abbey, then crossed over to Westminster Hall and the Houses of Parliament topped by Big Ben. It was going on eight o'clock when Chris finally took a table in a restaurant. The room was crowded and the service was somewhat slow. He ordered from the menu and presently the waiter brought him a bowl of turtle soup. Chris started to dip his spoon in and then stopped. There was a large fly floating in the broth. Ah, uh, hold it, Chris exclaimed. A bit of insect life here, I'm afraid. The waiter clucked apologetically. That is most inexcusable, sir. I can't imagine how it got there. I will bring you a fresh bowl. Aha! A woman's deep, hoarse voice spoke from a table on the left. So, you too are discovering the insect menace, young man. Chris turned in surprise. I beg your pardon? The speaker was a large woman wearing a shabby tweed suit and a shapeless hat. Perched upon a mass of brindled hair. "'Her piercing eyes stared at Chris through a gold lorgnette. "'The insect menace, young man, "'of which that fly in your soup is just a sample. "'Surely you're aware that the creatures threaten "'the very existence of mankind. "'A million species, breeding like mad, "'gradually taking over the whole earth.' "'Yeah, imagine that,' Chris murmured. He was evidently up against one of those typically dotty English dowagers that he had read about. "'You realize, of course,' the woman continued, "'that biological efficiency far surpasses our own.' She rattled off facts about bugs to prove her point. Chris squirmed a bit and coughed. "'As a matter of fact, I'm organizing a society to cope with the problem. You might care to join one of these days.' She handed Chris a card and added darkly, The menace is far greater than you may suspect. The card read, Agatha, Duchess of Soho, Founder and Chairwoman, Counter-Insect Association. Chris mumbled something politely and managed to turn away as the waiter brought another bowl of soup. For the rest of the meal, he carefully avoided looking around. When he left the restaurant... Chris hailed a taxi and gave Lustig's address. It was two minutes after nine when the cab dropped him in Hatton Garden, the street of diamond merchants. Chris paid the driver and turned to study the three story building. On the ground floor was a shuttered jewelry store bearing a different number, but a doorway on the right, evidently leading upstairs, had a sign Eli Lustig, Diamonds Bought and Sold. Chris pressed the bell and heard it ringing inside. No one answered. He glanced up. The top floor windows showed light and a shadow moved across one of the blinds. Chris rang the bell again, and it was answered by a shrill scream of terror. Chapter 6 Watcher in the Dark Another fearful shriek split the stillness. Chris tried the door and found it locked, Then he glanced up and down the block. Nobody in sight. Without hesitating longer, he whipped out a slender tool from his pocket and picked the lock. A burglar alarm erupted loudly as he pushed the door open. Chris was startled by the clanging, but a third, weaker scream halted his impulse to flee. I can't let somebody get murdered, he thought, and scrambled up the stairs. Chris rounded the second-floor landing, went past a darkened glass door, which also bore the name Eli Lustig, and pressed on up to the next flight. On the third floor he came to another door, this one wooden. It opened at his touch. Chris entered. Not a sound. It was an office with a desk and file cabinets. The drawers had been ransacked and papers scattered about. In one wall of the office was an open doorway leading to another lit room. Chris ran on through and skidded to a gasping halt. It was a living room with a thick Persian carpet and heavy mahogany furniture. Against the sofa lay a man who was bleeding. Chris darted to his side. The victim, wizened and gray-haired, looked as if he had been attacked by some wild animal. His arms had been flung up to protect himself, but his sleeves had been ripped and both his Face and arms were gashed with what looked like claw marks. This had to be Lustig, Chris guessed. He fumbled for signs of pulse, then started bolt upright as his ear caught the noise of movement above the persistent ringing of the alarm. Whoever or whatever had attacked Lustig must still be in the building. Somewhere in the back, Chris told himself as he strained to listen. He dashed through the apartment and found a door that opened on a rear stairway. The next moment came a shrill police whistle from the street, confused sounds of people bursting in and tramping up the front stairs. I had better leave, Chris decided fast. Fine time I'd have now trying to explain what I'm doing here. He plunged down the black stairway. A chill shot up his spine as he heard noises on the flight below. Someone else had to be ducking out the same way, presumably Lustig's attacker. It'd be great to run into that creep, Chris thought, especially in the dark. A door opened and slammed somewhere below. Chris continued his descent, trusting to luck not to lose his footing in the darkness. He found the back door and darted out into a narrow, twisting alley. Chris turned left and scuttled along the alley he collided with a dustbin and knocked it over. Muttering with rage and pain, Chris hopped on one leg and rubbed his shin for a moment and then resumed his flight. The alley connected with the street adjoining Hatton Garden. Chris slowed a bit, but kept to a brisk walking pace, trying to put as much distance as possible between himself and the crime scene. Eventually, he found his way to the Farringdon Underground Station, Where he hastily studied the subway map before buying a ticket. In case somebody remembered his face, Chris took a roundabout route of the Circle Line to Charing Cross. There he got off and walked through London's brightly lit theatre district, working back toward Piccadilly Circus. When he finally reached his hotel, Chris glimpsed a figure lurking in a darkened doorway across the street. The doorman saluted with a cheery, Good evening, sir. And Chris returned the greeting. When he looked across the street again, the figure was no longer in sight. Should he walk over and investigate? No, he'd better not with the doorman watching, he decided. He got out his key and went up in the lift to 549. Even though the room had been changed, that gave him no sense of security. Not with that stakeout across the street, Chris thought. He took a pen from his pocket and plucked off the cap of his infrared snooperscope. After unlocking the door cautiously, he scanned the darkened room through the scope, but detected no sign of an intruder. The bathroom and the closet were empty. Chris walked over to the window and peered out through the curtain. He was still there? The figure in the doorway had not only reappeared, he definitely seemed to be watching the hotel. Chris drew the shade, then turned on the light, being careful not to show himself in the window as a target. Well, what about bugs and booby traps, he wondered. I'd better play it safe. He checked over the room, bath, and closet, but found nothing. At last he undressed and put out his shoes for the hotel boots to shine, swished off the light, and crawled into bed. Ah, man, I'm bushed, he murmured to himself. No sleep the night before, except for his doze on the plane. Tomorrow would be soon enough to figure out what, if anything, he could do about his thwarted contact with Lustig and the package for Nikos. Chris found himself too keyed up to fall asleep. As he stretched, trying to relax, he became aware of a faint, persistent buzzing. Hey, what's that? Chris sat up tensely, then gave a sheepish grin in the darkness. Ah, just a fly. Must have come in through the open window. Man, I must be on edge. Have to watch out. No way for a CIA agent to act. Chris settled back on his pillow, thoughts unreal jerkily in his brain, like the twitching images of an old-fashioned Nickelodeon movie. Flies, insects. The book, The Behavior of Insects in Schenko's car. The Giant Hornets. The daffy dowager at the restaurant and her gabble about the insect menace. Oh, man. Chris came alert again as if he had been pinked with a hot electrode. Maybe that insect menace jazz wasn't just silly chatter. I've really been goofing off. Why didn't I get the connection before? Perhaps Agatha, Duchess of Soho, was a toad agent who'd been trying to slip him a message. Had she already been seated in the restaurant when he arrived, or had she come in afterwards and taken a seat beside him? Chris wasn't sure. For all he knew, she might have shadowed him all the way from the hotel. Counter insect association. Did that mean something? Oh, man, CIA. Was it possible she was an American agent, too, assigned to keep a helpful eye on the situation? More buzzing close to his nose this time. Chris brushed the fly away with an angry mutter and sat up. He was too disturbed now to put up with any more insect dive bombing. All right, baby, you've had it. Chris swung his legs out of bed and reached for the lamp switch. Suddenly, he stiffened. At floor level, reflecting a faint glow of light from around the window shade, two small beady eyes gleamed in the darkness. Chris switched on a lamp. A rat! Instead of scurrying off, it crouched motionless, staring at him, fixedly. Chris's flesh crawled. Don't just sit there! Repulsive, he muttered. Go! Beat it! Get out of here! Still, the rat refused to move. Chris groped cautiously on the floor for his slipper, intending to throw it. Next instant... The rat went for him. Chris flung up his legs and rolled across the bed, catapulting himself to a standing position on the other side. Good grief! The thing must be rabid! Chris backed away hastily just in time as the rat darted under the bed toward him. Again, he danced clear as it made several lunges. The thing was pursuing him! Step by step, Chris waltzed his way toward the closet. In one lightning move, he yanked the pen from his suit coat and zipped off an anesthetic dart. The rat flopped on its side. Chris stared at it for a long moment in sheer horror. Oh, man! His heart was thumping and cold sweat was trickling down his sides. Baby, did someone plant you here? Or did you just crawl out of the woodwork? He shot another dart into the rodent's head to make sure it was dead then wrapped it in tissues and dropped the rat into the wastebasket. But that fly was still at it. Chris got a towel and swatted the insect and finally crawled back into bed. In two minutes, he was asleep. Hours later, the shrill ringing of the telephone aroused him. He glanced at his watch as he groped for the phone. It was still pretty early, 6 51 a.m. Hello? Jundi. Geronimo? Chris exclaimed. What's up? Lenny. Geronimo spoke fast in Apache. Have you seen the morning papers yet? I'm not even out of bed. Then get out, Pronto. And get out of your hotel, too. Why? What's wrong? Eli Lustig's place was broken into last night, and he was attacked. I know, but. He's in the hospital in bad shape. They don't know if he's going to pull through. His joint was burgled, too. Big haul of diamonds. What else? Geronimo hesitated for a moment. What else? Hold on tight, Chunde. Your mug's plastered all over the front page of every newspaper in London.